glad that you are here this evening after, I don't know, eight months of talking about this thing called the, uh, the Institute. We're finally doing something, right? On a, uh, on a Wednesday night even. So uh, thank you for taking a risk and uh, trying something new tonight. Now, if you're still wondering, should I be here? Isn't this for college students or seminary students? The answer is no. It is, you should be here because it is not for college students or seminary students. In fact, if you're a college student or a seminary student, you should leave now. We don't, we don't want you here. Sorry, Blake. No, this is... No, we are, uh, we're going to have, uh, I think, a good time uh, over the course of the fall. So just a couple of preliminary things, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. First, I'm going to have a handout every week, and uh, it'll typically be two, three, four pages, and it'll be right out here on the tables. And I've not stapled them together because I really want you to have the option whether you want to staple it or whether you want to hole punch it and put it in a notebook. I know different people like different things. So we'll just have them like this so that you can do what you want to. I don't know week by week if we will have physical copies of previous week's handouts. That's going to vary. So I also have uh, several copies of my church business card that are out there. So if anybody misses a week or two or four and you say, can I have a copy of the notes? If you'll email me, then I can send you a copy of the notes and that way you can have those things if you've missed them. Uh, if I've not met you yet, uh, my name is Nathan Finn and I serve as teaching pastor uh, here at Taylor's First Baptist. I also work full time at uh, North Greenville University where as of about uh, four days ago, uh, I serve as executive director of the Institute for Transformational Leadership at North Greenville uh, and professor of faith and culture. For uh, five and a half years, I was the provost at North Greenville, but we've made a transition in part so I can focus more on teaching and writing, which is what I really love to do, and have a little bit more time to give to Taylor's First Baptist. And so we're really excited about that transition and hope it's going to bear some fruit uh, even here on these Wednesday nights. So the way that this is going to work, uh, I like content. So I'd rather give you too much content on the handouts than too little content. And sometimes I talk a little bit fast. So I think handouts are helpful. Several of you have said you like handouts. And so hopefully we'll get along really well as far as that goes. But what we'll do is really just walk through the material here and stop every once in a while and take questions. So if you've heard me teach in other contexts, <laughs> where we've not done a lot of Q&A, uh, that's because it's been in a big room and there's been 200 people sitting there. But this is a little bit different and we wanna pause and have conversations about it sometimes. So we'll just kind of figure this thing out together and hopefully uh, after two or three weeks, we'll sort of know what our rhythm is going to be. Uh, I also wanna let you know, uh, Pastor Josh and I have talked about this and we well understand that folks might move back and forth. There may be something he's teaching on in Leviticus that you're very interested in, or you may be interested in some of what we're doing in the Institute, uh, but not everything we're talking about over a semester, and that's okay. No one here has signed on to, uh, you know, there's no blood oath that you're gonna be here every week or anything like that. Same thing would be the case downstairs. So you're not gonna hurt my feelings 
or his feelings uh, if you're moving back and forth, and, and in part to accommodate people, probably doing that at least periodically. Uh, we are recording both this and the pastor's Bible study so that you're able to go online within a couple of days and watch the other thing that you missed if you're interested in both. Or if you're only in one or the other and you're out of town for a week or two, you're able to go back and look at it. I don't know where that's going to be on the website. I don't know how websites work. I know how to find them. I know how to access them. I don't know how it gets on the website. Uh, but I've been assured it's going to be on the website, and so hopefully we'll have some more information about that later. So with that, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer, and then let's get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to finally uh, begin the Establish Institute and to begin to uh, talk about some of these topics that we're going to be addressing here over the next few weeks and over the next couple of years. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your blessings would be upon us, that we would have a good time together, that we would learn more about you and this world that you've created for your glory. We pray that our time this evening and every week in the Institute would be time well spent for the sake of the kingdom work that you're doing in and through each of us and through our church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin with just a little bit of introduction about what we're going to be doing uh, over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, the Established Institute, some of you have heard this before, exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. That's our mission statement, and it's going to be right there at the top every single week so that we can remind ourselves of why we're here. The Institute Big Picture is a two-year discipleship program through which we're going to emphasize four major themes. Christian story, that's what we're going to do this fall. Christian belief, Christian formation, and Christian witness. So we'll cover that sort of like school semesters over the next couple of years. This fall, our focus is going to be on the theme of Christian story. So what do we mean by that? The Bible contains what has been called the true story of the whole world. All of our individual stories, as different as they might be, as we might be one from another, all of our individual stories can only be rightly understood when we frame our story within the context of that story, the story of stories. That's how we make sense of our individual stories. And we find that story of stories across the scriptures. So over the next 12 weeks, we're going to attempt to better understand that Christian story by talking about four different topics. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about the basics of biblical interpretation. What do we bring to the table whenever we open our Bibles? Then we're going to spend several weeks doing a big picture, 30,000 foot overview of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, not digging into every detail, but reminding ourselves of that story, the major themes, what we need to know about it. 
we'll talk a little bit about how the Old and New Testament relate to each other. Maybe that's something you've wondered about before. We'll, we'll spend a whole week talking about how do the Old Testament and New Testament relate to each other. And then we'll spend a couple of weeks at the end of the fall talking about biblical theology. And what I don't mean by that is theology that comes from the Bible, though we want all of our theology to come from the Bible. By biblical theology, we mean the idea of tracing themes across the scriptures, across the book. So think about something like God's presence or God's salvation uh, through judging sin or covenant or kingdom, these sorts of things. So we're going to do all of that this fall, and our hope is by the end of these 12 weeks, we'll have a better understanding of the Christian story. And then in the spring, Lord willing, if Jesus tarries his return, we will uh, we'll talk about Christian belief and, and talk about basic Christian doctrine. Any questions about that? Kind of where we're going? Seeing none, let's introduce our topic for tonight. So this week, we're going to begin a three-week study of basic biblical interpretation in this lesson, we're really going to talk about two related ideas. We're going to talk about uh, what biblical interpretation is. It's a very overview. And then we're also going to talk about the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And if you're wondering why are we talking about that, it's because we need to understand what we believe about the Bible so that we can better know why we need to study the Bible. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's kind of preliminary to help us dive into this topic. And so some of this might be very familiar to some of you, and for others, maybe this is something you're thinking about for the first time or for the first time in a long time. So let me begin with a question. How many of you have heard the word hermeneutics before? Raise your hand. Look at that. That's a, a lot of folks raised your hand. So now I'm going to ask a second question. Who would be so bold as to define hermeneutics for us? What does that word mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? It was derived from Hermes. Derived from Hermes. Message. Message. That's good. Interpretation of language in both its oral and written. <laughs> <laughs> so now I know who he is. See, you're all going to take on parts in the classroom here in the coming weeks, right? So hermeneutics is the interpretation of language in both its oral and written form. See why it's good to have a handout? Uh, it is from the Greek word hermeneo, comes from Hermes, and that means to translate or interpret. So when Christians talk about hermeneutics, and, and we're not the only people who talk about it, but when Christians talk about hermeneutics, what we normally mean is how to interpret the Bible. So maybe some of you were English majors in college and you talked about hermeneutics and it was how to interpret other types of texts. That's a valuable conversation. That's not our conversation. Our conversation is what do we do with the Bible? How do we rightly understand the scriptures? Maybe you've noticed over the years that different Christian groups have various understandings of what the Bible teaches about all sorts of topics. Now, I don't mean the weird groups. 
I mean like Christian groups that take the Bible seriously, who love the Lord and love lost people. We debate stuff, don't we? You probably have Christian friends who have a different understanding of baptism than you. You probably have Christian friends who have a different understanding of the miraculous spiritual gifts. You probably have Christian friends who have a different understanding of the millennium, eternal security. The list could go on, right? Well, brothers and sisters, these are hermeneutical differences. They're differences in how to rightly interpret the Bible. And if any Christian is being even a little bit reflective about what he or she believes, hopefully they believe it because they sincerely think the Bible teaches it. Even if they're wrong or, or confused, hopefully we hold to what we believe not just because of tradition or not just because it's what our church believes or not just because it's what grandma taught us at her knee, but it's because it's what we honestly think the Bible teaches. That's hermeneutics trying to figure out what the Bible says. Now, it's important to note up front that Christians do not believe that all interpretations of Scripture are equally valid. Just because they're out there doesn't mean everybody's right. Doesn't mean everybody's equally wrong either. The Bible is not some sort of infinite babble of all these differing interpretations with people chirping in each other's ears and, and some interpretations being more uh, right than wrong and, and, and sometimes them being incompatible with each other. That's actually not the way it's supposed to be. Some biblical texts do lend themselves to multiple layers of meaning. We'll talk about that more in a coming week. But the Bible's meaning is something that's fixed, even if we don't understand it. The Bible's meaning is determined by the original human authors and ultimately the Lord who inspired those human authors to write those words. So we don't make the meaning up. Denominational traditions don't get to make the meaning up and churches don't get to make the meaning up. It means what it means. And it means what those human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, desire for it to mean. So we're not trying to come to the Scripture and just be creative. We're not trying to come to the Scripture and just dig deeper. When we interpret the Bible, we're trying as best as we possibly can to understand what it is intended to mean by the men who wrote it and the Holy Spirit who gave them those words when they wrote it. I like what one New Testament scholar says about this. When dealing with the scriptures, to properly interpret a text is to faithfully convey the, ins the inspired human author's meaning of the text while not neglecting the divine intent. It means what it's meant to mean. We've got to figure out what it's meant to mean. And that's what we're going to talk about over these next three weeks. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been at one of those Bible studies where everybody takes turns saying what the text means to them? You ever been in that sort of Sunday school class before? Well, what this means to me is that is not what we're doing. It's not about what it means to me or what it means to you. It's about what it means and trying to discern that and conforming what we believe to what it means.
So we want to faithfully interpret the scriptures. And that word faithfully is really important. I'm going to use it a lot over the next three weeks especially. When we interpret the scriptures correctly, we are glorifying the Lord, who is the divine author of those words. They are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, 105. So there's a lot writing on us getting the interpretation right. We want to glorify God by rightly understanding his word and then figuring out what that means for our lives and for our church and for our families for his glory. So to say it one more time, our goal as interpreters is not to invent the meaning of the biblical text. Rather, our goal is to grasp the meaning of the text that God intended. We don't create meaning out of a text. We seek to find the meaning that's already there. We are panning for gold. Not prying, we're not trying to put gems in the stream. We're panning for the gold that's already there and trying to discover it. Like Timothy, each of us should do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what we want to do. We want to rightly handle the word of the truth. So all of this that we've talked about these last few minutes is simply intended to introduce the idea of biblical interpretation. We're actually going to spend next week and the following week digging a little bit deeper into uh, biblical interpretation, talking about things like different genres of Scripture, different rules we should have in mind whenever we come to the Bible. Uh, where did the Bible come from? We're going to talk about some of those things over the next couple of weeks. But what we want to do for the remainder of this evening is spend most of our time addressing a couple of important preliminary matters that are foundational to interpreting the Bible, and that is the inspiration and authority of the Bible. But before we do that, any questions about the idea of hermeneutics or the idea that we're trying to discern the meaning that God has for us in the text rather than inventing the meaning? Any, any questions or comments? And by the way, I love questions and comments. It goes a lot better when there's questions and comments. But I won't embarrass you and call on you. Maybe Blake, but I won't embarrass or call on anybody else. Yeah. It can be confusing, can't it? Especially. The Bible is the Bible. The Bible is the Bible. But here's, here's some of what happens, though. So how many of you have spent the vast majority of your Christian life in this church or churches a lot like this church's? Raise your hand if that's been your experience. Now, raise your hand if you've spent significant time in more than one church of different traditions. See, here's part of what happens 
we all get conditioned to read the Bible certain ways so that what we see seems to be obvious to us, but somebody else it seems less obvious to them. And a great example is baptism. Now, I'm going to tell you all, it vexes my Baptist heart that there are people who read the Bible and come away with the, with the idea that we can sprinkle babies and call that baptism. And yet, I have godly friends who have what they believe are very good biblical reasons for holding to that. And I think they're wrong. But they really do believe that, and they have a very high view of Scripture, and, and, and they, and they want to honor God with what they believe about baptism. And, and at least a part of why I believe what I believe is because all the churches I've been in believe it. And at least a part of why they believe what they believe is because it's what they've been taught to believe. And so some of what we have to do sometimes is we have to think about what we've been conditioned to believe and scrutinize that from the Scriptures and say, do I really believe this? Does the Bible really teach this? Or am I just kind of defaulting to what I've always heard? Or am I just kind of defaulting to what seems right? Now, now don't do that with baptism. Because Baptists are right about baptism. No, but seriously, even, even those things that, that we hold dear, I mean, we should always, we should be good Bereans who are searching the Scriptures, trying to, uh, to come up with the truth. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on our senior pastor a little bit. Actually, I won't pick on our senior pastor. I'll pick on the idea of senior pastors who exist out there. How many of you have ever been listening to a sermon and thought to yourself, I love this brother, but I'm not sure about that. Have you ever done that? Some of you are liars. You're not raising your hand. I mean, sometimes we wrestle with that, right? And, and again, it's because we need to search the scriptures. It, uh, what Pastor Josh says on Sunday mornings is only authoritative insofar as it lines up with scripture. By the way, you know who else would say that? Pastor Josh. So again, the, the goal of preachers and teachers is to properly communicate the scriptures as we're listening and learning from the scriptures, we should be searching the scriptures, not just for our own sake, but to hold those leaders accountable, right? And to make sure that they're not teaching us wrongly and, and leading us astray. One of the easiest ways to go astray is to not take the Bible seriously. So let's talk about the inspiration and authority of scripture. As Christians... We believe that the Bible is inspired. It is literally God's words in written form. But we also acknowledge that the Bible was written by dozens of different authors over a period of about a thousand years in three different languages. Unlike every other book that has ever been written, the Bible is both a divine book and a human book. We also believe that the Bible is authoritative. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. And thus, the written words of scripture carry with them God's authority. So what does the Bible say about all this? What do the scriptures teach? We're just going to walk through this, and this is a thick handout in part so that you're not flipping through your Bibles. We've got lots of scripture here for you that we're just going to go through together. The Bible attests to its own authority and inspiration. 
Sometimes God's spoken words were written down and recorded by men. There are many examples of this phenomenon, but we're just going to look at the most famous one in Scripture. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. Now you all have it in front of you. Let's not be bashful. Who would read this short passage for us? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll give you several other examples as well, but what's this passage talking about? It's the Ten Commandments. So the Lord speaks those commandments to Moses and he writes them down. So every once in a while that happens in the Bible. God speaks and men write his words and we get the scriptures. In at least one case... God himself wrote down his words, the Ten Commandments that he spoke to Moses on the mountain. Now, this is the earlier version of the Ten Commandments. Who would read from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10 here for, for, for us on the handout? The yes. Lord, Jump right in. Sorry. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the So here we also have the Ten Commandments. God writes those words. So at least one example in Scripture, and there's several other references to God writing the Ten Commandments. Sometimes, though, it's not God speaking the words and them writing them down or God writing the words, but what happens most often, the words and writings of men are called God's Word. We find this in both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Uh, That should say epistles, not apostles. Unlike the Bible, this is not an infallible handout. So we have found our our first error. But uh, who would read these two short passages, Hosea 1.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2.13? And you don't need to raise your hand, just jump right in. also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Thank you. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This word that you receive from us, that's not really just the words of men, but it's the word of God. So sometimes we see this in scripture. Or next. The New Testament in particular identifies the words of Old Testament prophets with God's words. It also argues that the entire Old Testament is God's words, that he has breathed out into written form. The Old Testament is alive with God's power and changes people's lives. Who would read these three short passages for us? 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thank you. So all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. The prophet was speaking, but the Lord was speaking through the prophet, right? Or we have these sacred writings in 2 Timothy that were breathed out by God, referring to the Old Testament. And that's referring to all of the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is that every word of the Old Testament, every bit of it written by men, dudes, people just like us, every one of those words that those men wrote were breathed out by God. Folks, we call that a mystery. I don't understand that. But the Bible clearly teaches that they really were the words of men. And at the same time, they really were the words of God. To such a degree that Paul can say, he can write without crossing his fingers or winking. God wrote that. Those are God's words for us. And then I just have to ask, I mean, have you ever been reading the scriptures and been pierced by the scriptures? Have you ever had that happen? And God's word is powerful. It does things to us, doesn't it? I was reading an author just a few days ago who was uh, making the comment that the Bible is the only book that is not only a book that we read, but it's a book that reads us. Tells us what's going on. The New Testament not only calls the Old Testament God's words, but the New Testament also identifies itself with God's words, implying that the New Testament is inspired in the same way as the Old Testament. So both the Old and New Testaments are considered the words of God. All right, we've got four, so we're going to break it up. Who would read these first two? All right, I see Blake's hand. Who's going to read the second two? Over here. All right, let's do it. All right. 
thank you all. So when this letter's been read among you, read it over there and read it over there. So there's a recognition that there's authority with this letter that's being written. Sometimes it's asked, did they know that they were inspired? I don't know that they all always knew they were inspired, but some of them sometimes knew they were inspired. And Paul definitely recognized that his words carried a special authority. And then here in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, and then he quotes both the Old and the New Testament as being scripture, when the scriptures say. Or 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. By the way, is anybody a little bit encouraged that Peter found Paul hard to believe sometimes? Does that make you feel a little bit better? I love it. And not only does Peter say that Paul's writings are scripture, but Peter says, man, some of that stuff's hard to believe. So take heart. Even, even Peter struggled with it sometimes. And then with, uh, with Revelation, we get to uh, this idea that John is bearing witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This New Testament writing that's being recorded is, is the word of God. I mean, it's just remarkable. Now, here's what I love about this. So here we are, a bunch of Americans, or, or maybe you're not an American, but we live in America, and it's the 21st century, and I'm just going to ask the question. And I'm, I don't, We're not disrespecting the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. We're going to talk a lot about it. But how many of you find the New Testament to be a little bit more accessible than the Old Testament? At least some of that. Because this is about Jesus, right? And so it's natural for us to often gravitate to the New Testament. But we need to understand that for the earliest Christians, the New Testament was the new and strange thing they're trying to figure out. These new letters that are floating around and how do we know what's inspired and what's not. We're going to talk a lot about that next week when we talk about where the Bible came from. But the Old Testament, that was the Bible that Jesus read. That was the Bible that the apostles had. So for them, the question wasn't, was the Old Testament inspired? Even their unbelieving Jewish friends thought the Old Testament was inspired. For them, the question was, what do we do with these letters from this guy named Paul? What do we do with these letters from this guy named Peter? What do we do with Revelation? And then what do we do with Revelation? <laughs> these were the questions that they were asking. But they're saying here, we should treat these writings, just like we treat those writings, and we know those writings are inspired. The same God inspired these writings. More on that next week. Jesus himself. Sometimes you meet people who say, well, I don't, you know, I don't care what Paul says. I want to know what Jesus says. Well, that's a bad way to think. But if you know somebody like that, let's see what Jesus says. Jesus himself argues that every word of the Old Testament is inspired and that he came to fulfill the Old Testament, that God's words will not pass away without accomplishing their purposes, and that God's words should be obeyed. This is a great passage. Who would do Matthew 5, 17 through 19?
thank you, not abolishing them, but fulfilling them, every iota, every dot, blessings come to those who wholly obey the Old Testament. They're called least whenever they don't obey all of the Old Testament. This is what Jesus thinks about the Old Testament. He says, it's all inspired, and it's all about me. Talk more about that over the next couple of weeks. God's words are of everlasting authority and always perfectly accomplish God's intentions. We have two different passages here from Isaiah, both of them very familiar, who would read them for us. Thank you very much. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Isn't that a precious promise? The word of the Lord stands forever. And then you pair it with that second promise. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Not only is God's word forever, God's word works perfectly. God's word accomplishes his intentions. You know what I don't understand is how people can read the Bible and not take it seriously when we see things like this. The Bible does not present itself as a book to be trifled with, does it? As a book to just be read every once in a while for that promise that, that we really need to hear but kind of put aside the rest of the time. That's not, that's not how the Bible talks about itself. God's words were to be recorded, continually meditated upon, and passed down from generation to generation. Who would read Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9? And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Thank you. 
write them down, think about them all the time, and then tell your kids and the grands about them. That's what Deuteronomy says we should do with the Word of God. It should be at the very center of our lives. Believers are to know God's words, obey God's words, and allow God's words to change their hearts and shape their actions. I'll tell you what, this is a long one, so I'll read it so that nobody feels the burden of doing that. Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Isn't that beautiful? This is what King David says about the Scriptures. Our last example here from the Scriptures. Believers are to trust the Bible because though it is the words of men, it is most importantly the written words of God who inspired those men to write it. We've already read 2 Timothy 3. It's just there to remind us again what it says. Who would read 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21? I'll do it. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. No prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that image. Being caught up by something more powerful than themselves the Holy Spirit of God, in a miraculous way so that their words that they really said and really wrote and formulated in their own minds just like every other word they ever said or spoke, but those words were also God's words because that's what the Holy Spirit did in that moment with those words. God's word is amazing. So how do we put this together? How do we put it together? That's where we get this theological summary from, and we are getting near the end. 
The whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, is inspired by God and is God's written revelation of himself and his will to humanity. The Bible is a thoroughly human book written by real people and as such bears the marks of any other piece of literature. Let me hit pause for just a minute. Did you know that the Apostle Mark has bad grammar? It's true. If you know Greek, you see it. Mark has bad grammar. Did you know that Hebrews has immaculate grammar? Probably won't surprise you if you read Hebrews. Why am I saying that? Because they're really the books of men. They're really the books of men. Mark can write like a redneck, and whoever wrote Hebrews can write like the greatest orator of the age, and God works through both of those people and the way they write to really communicate His words. Friends, that is a miracle that God does that. They really are thoroughly human books. So as such, each book has its own style, its own grammar, its own emphases, its own vocabulary. The human aspect of Scripture should never be downplayed like it is by some fundamentalists who hold to divine dictation, as if God whispers every word and they're just writing it down as his penmans. That is not what the Bible teaches about itself. Though every once in a while God whispers his words and they write it down, we saw a couple of examples of that, that is not where the vast majority of the Bible came from. Those men wrote those words they wanted to write. And yet, the Bible is also a thoroughly divine book written by the Holy Spirit, revealing God's words just as much as the human author's words. Every book of the Bible shares common themes and contributes elements to a common, grand narrative. The divine aspect of Scripture should never be downplayed like it is by some liberals who argue that the Bible is just a human book. Friends, it is not just a human book, though it's a thoroughly human book. And it's not just a divine book, though it's a thoroughly divine book. And one of the greatest miracles ever, the Bible really is fully God's Word and fully man's words at the same time in a way that we can't fully wrap our mind around. And yet, if we take the Bible seriously, we have to confess it's true because it's what the Bible teaches about itself. Because the Bible is inspired by God, it is also authoritative, written words for humanity in general and believers in particular. We are thus obligated to submit to God's words as our supreme authority for life, doctrine, and practice. All the stuff. Christian faithfulness in any matter is contingent upon the degree to which we place ourselves under the Bible's authority. It is our supreme authority for faith and practice. Let's go back to that illustration a few minutes ago of pastors and teachers. Sometimes Josh Powell or whoever is preaching is going to stand in the pulpit and they're going to say, you must do this or you must do that. 
And if Josh Powell says that, and he can back it up with a thus saith the Lord, you know what? We must do this or we must do that. Not because he said it, but because the scriptures say it. And he's the one communicating that. But if he stands up and says, I think y'all ought to do X, Y, Z, what's the response? Response is, well, brother, let's see what the scripture says. When there's not clearly a thus saith the Lord. God's word carries authority. And our maturity is based in large part on our submissiveness to that authority and being willing to go where God says go and do what God says do and let go of what God says let go of and grab hold of what God says grab hold of. The Bible reads us as we read it. And we should be ever putting ourselves under its authority for our good and for God's glory and as a community for the flourishing of this community of disciples that we call Taylor's First Baptist Church. Our church has a confessional statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And this confession has an excellent article on Scripture that addresses these issues. So I'm just going to read to you what our church has adopted as what we officially believe about the Bible. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union or unity and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation." How many of you have heard the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it? Have you heard that before? How many of you have ever seen the bumper sticker that says, the Bible says it, that settles it? Kind of as the counter to, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Our confession of faith says the Bible says it, and that settles it. Because it's God's word. It's true. It's about Jesus and we need to align our lives with what it says, no matter what the issue is that we're talking about. So before opening it up for some questions or comments for the last seven or eight minutes we have together, I want to give you some recommended resources. I will do this most weeks, offer some resources. So first, uh, my favorite study Bible is the ESV study Bible. It is not infallible. The notes did not come from God. But I like it. If you don't like it, talk to me. There's a couple of others I would recommend too. But for the sake of space, I'm recommending my favorite here. Uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, 
This is a uh, what I'm going to call a popular level introduction to the doctrine of Scripture. This is that 130 or 40 page book that you can hand to any Christian who reads. And they can look at it and learn more about what the Bible teaches about itself. Or for those of you who want to dig a little bit deeper, uh, Matt Rogers, who pastors down the road at uh, the church, Christ Fellowship, whatever they're calling it this week, Christ Fellowship Church. They've changed it several times. Matt's a friend of mine. He'd laugh if he was here when I said that. They changed it about once a year. But uh, Christ Fellowship, Matt Rogers, Donnie Mathis, who some of you have heard teach here on Wednesday nights before. He's one of my colleagues at North Greenville. Their book, Seven Arrows, Aiming Bible Readers in the Right Direction, is a great everyday introduction to how to interpret the Bible that anybody in this room who enjoys reading could pick up and benefit from. But for those of you who are a little bit nerdy, Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes' book, Grasping God's Word, is a wonderful textbook. I have used it before uh, teaching a hermeneutics class. And I think that uh, some of you would enjoy it if you want to dig a little bit deeper. And those for you who are really, really nerdy and say the college textbook isn't good enough, I want the seminary textbook. Uh, Robert Plummer's 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible is uh, my favorite introduction uh, to this topic. I've been using it a lot as I've been preparing these notes. He was one of my professors and is an all-around good guy, and I would recommend that one as well. So we have a little bit of time left. What questions, thoughts, concerns, pontifications do, uh, do you have this evening related to this idea of biblical interpretation or how we ought to think about Scripture before we start interpreting it? Yes, sir. I think, like all mysteries, it absolutely can be confusing. And it can especially be confusing to unbelievers. But just because it is confusing and a stumbling block to unbelievers, I don't think that means that we should hold back from saying what we know to be true, that it really is God's Word and it really is human words. Here's the thing. If somebody is a recalcitrant unbeliever who is unwilling to listen and dialogue, we're not going to be able to convince them anyway. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So I think we just keep kindly but firmly reinforcing the truth and trust that the same Spirit who inspired these words also awakens dead hearts and helps people to begin to comprehend what they wouldn't naturally do. But, but no, I'll go a step further. Not only do I think it's difficult for them to gra grasp, um, if you're lost and all this is news, to you, is news to you for the first time, it is weird. It sounds like hogwash. Who in the world believes that God writes books and men write books and, and how does all that work? I mean, it sounds natural to us because we believe it and we've been taught it. But yeah, it is. It's a stumbling block. And so uh, I don't think the first conversation we have with our lost friends is let me tell you about God's book. But I do think we want to talk to them about God's book and, uh, and, and get them to begin to be open-minded to the idea at least that God is speaking through this book. And if we can get them to at least concede that God speaks through this book, then we can start to persuade them that the reason He speaks through this book is because He wrote it through those men who wrote it in a 
mysterious moving of the Holy Spirit that we can't quite explain. But yeah, it definitely sounds weird and sounds like circular logic to people who don't believe. There's no doubt about that. But again, we can't, we can't logic them into the kingdom. For those of us who do believe, so we stumbled across, I didn't know the word, hypostatic union, the hundred God's, Jesus Christ is fully man, fully God. Are we supposed to see parallels between Christ, the word, John 1? Are we supposed to? So what I would say is we are permitted to go there. So whenever I've taught on this in other contexts, what I say is not in the same way, but in a similar way that we talk about how Jesus is fully God and fully man in a way that we can't totally understand, but we believe to be true. So in a similar way, the Bible is God's book and it's human book but in a way that we can't totally wrap our mind around. So that's been a common analogy throughout church history that Christians have leaned on. We just don't want to say it's in the same way because then that's elevating Scripture to the same level as God, but certainly there's on some level a parallel that's there. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So Jesus, so here's the thing about the word. The Bible uses the word, the phrase the word. Try not to be confusing here. The Bible uses the phrase the word at times to speak to God's written words, at times to speak to God's spoken words, at time to speak to the words of men that are also the words of God, and at times to refer to Jesus without any reference to the words of God or the words of men. And so part of what we have to do as interpreters is say, what does the Bible mean here whenever it's referring to the word? I think the way that we put all that together is to say that uh, it is the word of Christ, who is the Word that is coming through in the Word that the Holy Spirit inspired those people to write. But this has tripped Christians up forever trying to put all this together. And I promise you're not the only person who's scratching their head right now going, but hang on just a minute. This is because it, it, the language can be confusing, but, uh, but the Bible speaks of all of these things as the Word, so we, we need to put them together. But I don't think what we want to say is that the Bible is the same as Jesus, or, and I don't think you're saying that, but the Bible is the same as Jesus, or Jesus is the same as the Bible. But we do want to say that Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of God's Word, John chapter 1, is speaking through that Word. And I think Jesus is even going to teach that that's what's happening, that that Word is testifying to Him, that He's the one speaking through those prophets and whatnot. There's definitely mystery there as well. You're going to hear me say a lot, there's definitely mystery there. So if you don't like mystery, <laughs> you might not like theology because uh, Deuteronomy says the deep things belong to God. And uh, by the way, so, so one, of the, one of the theologians who sometimes has a bad rap for people will say, well, he thought he had it all figured out is John Calvin. But if you go and read John Calvin's writings, about every fourth paragraph, he quotes Deuteronomy 29, 29, the deep things belong to God alone, because even he gets there and says, I don't know what's going on here. And so, 
And so if, if Calvin can quote it regularly, so can we, because sometimes it's just deep stuff and it's hard to wrap our minds around. And, and even if uh, some people have been able to wrap their mind around it, I'm not that people who can always wrap my mind around it. I think we have time for one more question, but we don't have to. Can I do one more? Yeah. Uh, would there be any counsel or any way you'd advocate thinking about all the translations available as we go and interpret the Bible? Or how should we think about it? Should we pay attention to that at all? Or Yeah, I think we should pay attention to that. So here's what I would say. It depends on what we desire to get out of a translation. So if we are desiring a translation that is as accessible to young people or unbelievers as possible, we might gravitate towards those translations that, um, that are translating all the thoughts as close as possible, but not every single word as close as possible. If what we're aiming for is being as accurate as possible, then it's going to be the word for word. But here's the dirty little secret. There is no Bible translation that is perfectly word for word. And only the paraphrases have no word for word. So it's really more of a spectrum than it is like clear buckets that you put the translations in. Does that make sense? So what I would say is if we're looking at things like the English Standard Version, the, whole, uh, the Christian Standard Version, New American Standard Version, those are essentially literal translations and I think are, are very accurate with what the English is saying versus what the Greek and Hebrew are saying. If we're looking at something like um, the Living Bible, or the, no, that's not, it's the New Living, the New Living Translation, or, uh, or the Message, those are paraphrases. They're not trying to be word for word. Something like the NIV is somewhere in between. I prefer that first category, like ESV, Christian Standard, stuff like that. It doesn't mean I think the others are bad. I just think they are of less use for me and my context than, uh, than some of those others. But I do think, but here's the thing. I don't think, and, and this is why I'm not uh, like a King James only type person. Uh, I don't think those, even things like the New, New International Version or even like the New Living Translation, that's not going to lead someone astray. I don't think it is as helpful as a more word-for-word -word translation to really understand the Bible, but countless people have come to faith in Christ by grabbing hold of a scripture translation that might not be as accurate as a word-for-word -word translation but the Lord used it and it spoke to them and it communicated the gospel to them and they believed and so praise God for that. So we may have differences of opinion on this and, and that's okay, but I'm not down on those other translations as much as I see the greatest value in the word-for-word -word translations. But man, the Holy Spirit speaks through all of those translations. And so, you know, it, again, it depends on kind of what the use is for that. There are no perfectly word-for-word -word ones. Dan, I saw you had your hand up, too. We'll go ahead and take your question. Yeah, maybe in most detail, but uh, does the Hebrew and the Greek have just one word-for-word? Word? Uh, no. There's more than one word for that in Hebrew and Greek. Okay. So yeah. Right. They're all used in different ways. They're all used in different ways. And because there's not 
any translation that's absolutely word for word. Sometimes they're using two or three words to communicate the concept of word, and our English Bible says word. And so every translation committee or scholar has to make those decisions about many more things than sometimes we realize when there's not an absolutely perfect one. We're trying to figure out what they're saying. But yeah, in this particular case, it doesn't solve the question with like, this version of word means Jesus and this version means the Bible and this version means like what a prophet says or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I wish it did, but, but alas, it doesn't. So hey, thank you very much for uh, taking a risk on the Establish Institute. Uh, let me close with a word of prayer and then I'm happy to stick around for a little bit and talk to anybody who wants to. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is your word for us, for your glory. Help us in these next few weeks to better understand it. We trust you to do that work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.